Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. You're about to listen to something incredible. The Holocaust is something that evokes pretty strong emotions in most of us. Obviously, we would find it repulsive. We would find it disgusting that such an event could take place. It's also scary because it took place in a civilized country. But in many ways, it's also very far removed from where we feel we are today. In Ireland, for instance, in Britain as well, there are quite a small amount of Jews that are left to tell the story either of their families' experiences of the Holocaust or indeed of their own personal experiences of the Holocaust. In the United States and in Eastern and Western Europe, certainly there are more Jews around, but this number is dwindling. As time goes by, there are less and less first-hand accounts of the Holocaust remaining. Of course, this means that those that are left have a unique responsibility to speak, and we have a unique responsibility to listen. The Holocaust is one of those events in history that comes with that warning tag, and it's a warning tag that has been repeated so often that we often lose sight and lose track of its importance. We've become desensitized to the words never again because, of course, it's ridiculous that anything like the Holocaust could ever happen again or will ever happen again. Certainly not if we have anything to say about it, we often say. But if never again is something that we take almost for granted, what about the people that lived through the Holocaust? What about the people who arrived home to their homes, if their homes indeed were still standing, after going through such a shattering uniquely dark and horrific experience, and then said the words, never again. What if ever since that moment they've been living with never again in their hearts, and what if now in the last few years they've started to see things that maybe make them think twice about how true those words never again really were? Maybe over 70 years later, the world is starting to forget or take for granted what six million Jews 
and several other people went through in the Holocaust. And maybe, just maybe, there is a danger that, unless the truth is spoken enough, lies will start to take the place of the truth, and before long the truth will be warped until no one really knows what the truth is anymore. I, for one, am very much determined that this does not happen. But that's not the only reason why I wanted to have one of Ireland's last Holocaust survivors on this podcast. Tommy Reichenthal is a man, really, who can't be done justice to in words. He's a man who, with a single-minded passion and enthusiasm, effectively reinvented himself in his 70s and went from being silent due to an inability to speak about what happened to him to becoming Arden's face of the Holocaust. There's no real way to say that without sounding morbid or sounding somehow overdramatic, but it's true. Tommy Reichenthal was a child when he went through the horrors of the Holocaust. He was a boy when he was in Belsen, and he lost several members of his family to the horrors of that event. He was born in Slovakia, and had matters taken a different course, he maybe never would have come to Ireland at all. But in 1960, for a variety of reasons, he did. And it is because he did that he is an Irish citizen today, and his children and his grandchildren are Irish citizens too. Because he did, Tommy Reichenthal is still in Ireland today. Tommy Reichenthal appeared on this podcast to talk to us about what he went through. This three-part talk I had with Tommy Reichenthal was so unlike anything I've ever done on When Diplomacy Fails. It was so unlike anything I ever thought I would ever do on When Diplomacy Fails that I don't even know really where to begin to describe it. I can give you a rough outline of what happens in each episode, but I can't I can't capture, guys, the real feelings that I had both during, after, before talking to this man. I've never been in the presence of someone who is literally a living embodiment of history. And not just history, but the darkest, most horrific portions of history. I can't do justice in words to how much of a service Tommy Reichenthal did by coming on this podcast. It's especially poignant for me because Tommy Reichenthal has made a point in the last decade of his life to travel around Ireland and visit several schools making as much as two speaking engagements a week in certain cases. In one of these speaking engagements, he came to my school, East Glendalough, in Wicklow Town. And when he came there, I knew, even as a 16-year-old, who was often prone to be thinking about other, less important things, I knew that there was something uniquely important about what this man was saying. I knew that his accent was strange, I knew that he was an old man, and I knew that he's not from here. But I also knew that, after what I'd read in the history books about the Holocaust, that this was proof. This man was proof that what those history books said were true. And he was more effective proof than any peer-reviewed article or successful book or written by an academic or any casual historian or what have you. He was a walking, talking embodiment of everything that had gone wrong in the 20th century. He was a walking, talking embodiment as well of the power of the human spirit 
and of how inspirational someone can be and how important it is to make sure we never forget. Tommy Reichenthal will never forget. He even released a documentary called Condemned to Remember, and this was his third documentary, by the way. We will get into Tommy Reichenthal's incredible energies and his incredible production schedule and the sheer impact he's had on hundreds, thousands of people, just like me, people the same age as me, including my wife, who could not quite believe that this man, this gentle, soft-spoken, friendly man, went through what he went through 70 years ago. So how did it all get organised? How did this all come together? Well, a few days before Valentine's Day, it was the 10th of February, I had this idea that it was about time I acted on one of those impulses I'd been having, because I knew of Tommy Reichenthal. Like I said, he came to my school and he spoke for a while, and I had his book and I'd seen his documentaries. He's sort of, I don't want to say a star in Ireland, because that doesn't really do him justice, because star implies that he's a celebrity with very little in the way of talents or, you you know, the usual connotations that go along with being a star. But he is, in many ways, a personality and a figure of immense importance. So the first thing I think of when trying to get people like this on the podcast is, well, where the heck do I even go? Because it's not like his email address is freely available. It's not like I can just ring him up whenever I want. So I thought, why not find out if there's any Holocaust centers in Ireland? And there was. A huge thanks to the Holocaust Education Trust for providing me with contact details and passing on my very timid but also very eager email to Tommy Reichenthal in the first place and getting this ball rolling. A few technical notes you should note on this episode. My laptop was almost on the fritz, so I brought up a backup recorder, a a little dictaphone I got from Aldi just to make sure that I got everything. So there's not very many occasions where this happens, but just in case you're wondering, on two or three occasions the audio cuts to the dictaphone version of the audio. So just in case you're wondering what had happened, that's why that's happening. Another thing you'll probably notice is that there is birds in the background. We were sitting in Tommy Reichenthal's very lovely sitting room and there was birds in the garden and yeah, the microphone picked them up. I don't think it really ruins the narrative or anything like that. It's not invasive. It's just some, almost like I put it there on purpose, but I didn't. But there you go. There are birds in the background. You're not just hearing things. I don't want to waste your guys' time and I don't want to make this a rambling session and try and make it about me or the podcast. This is not about me. This is definitely not about me. About 5% of this three-parter contains my voice, and that's the exact way I wanted it, because with a person like Tommy Reichenthal on your podcast, you do not speak. You let this man tell his story. And that is essentially what I did for two-thirds of this. I asked him to tell his story, and we worked from there. Some of you guys sent in questions because I did announce that I was doing this on social media. So I did my best to pose these questions to him in the third part. But in the first part here, we talk about his childhood. And we didn't notice the warning signs of a very darkening time in Slovakia. And how his innocence and his family members really blinded him to the worst of what was going on until suddenly it hit him in the face and he didn't quite understand it because he was only a child. The episode ends on a somewhat distressing note because it ends with him being packed off in those terrible cattle wagons to 
some unknown destination, which they thought, of course, was going to be Auschwitz. In the next episode, we'll resume this story, and we'll find out exactly where it was that he ended up and why. In the third episode, we'll continue and conclude that story, and look more on why he decided to start speaking out. And then, we'll conclude, of course, with those questions that you guys asked. Tommy Reichenthal is an incredible person. He is definitely the most incredible guest I've ever had on When Diplomacy Fails. I told him, as I sat in his house, which he invited me into, as I ate his partner's banana cake and drank tea with him after this conversation was recorded, that I would never be able to thank him enough for what he did for me here. But I knew that just talking, just having this platform of When Diplomacy Fails, was enough for him. It was enough for him because every time Tommy Reichenthal talks, every time he tells his story, he knows that he's done something. He's done his little bit, well, his large bit, to try and ensure that this never happens again. That When Diplomacy Fails could be this platform is something which fills me with immense pride, of course. But it's also something that makes me very emotional and really so happy because it means that I get to use When Diplomacy Fails to help Tommy Reichenthal tell his story. It's a position I never imagined I would be in, but without any further ado, it's time we got into this. The next voices you hear will be mine and Tommy Reichenthal's. Okay, history friends, you're very, very welcome to this very special episode. My guest today is Tommy Reichenthal, and he has a very, an incredible story to tell us, really. So you're very welcome, Tommy Reichenthal, and thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. Well, I think the best way to start this is to just ask you to, to tell your story, and I guess we can move on from there. Just to introduce myself, as you said, my name is Tommy Reichenthal. I was born in Slovakia. I'm living in Ireland for over 60 years, so mm. I'm an Irish citizen. Mm. Uh, I'm retired, uh, but uh, that's only theoretical, <laughs> because when I retired from my business, uh, I began to speak about the uh, Holocaust and specifically about my own experiences. And today I'm mm, very busy <laughs> uh, I have a very busy uh, schedule, uh, traveling and uh, making sure that uh, people don't forget uh, this uh, horrific time. Mm. Uh, I feel that I'm one of the last witnesses to this horrific event uh, uh, that happened not long ago, mm. it's, uh, 70 odd years ago. Holocaust and I feel I should uh, inform the people mm. and I feel that I owe it to the victims uh, that their memory is not forgotten specifically especially uh, because um, I lost uh, 35 members of my family wow. in the Holocaust so it is very important mm. as far as I'm concerned and that the Holocaust is not forgotten and uh, that uh, people are informed uh, that it did happen mm. because unfortunately we have uh, some 
people than mm. trying to deny yeah. that the Holocaust even happened. Oh. Well, if, if to start about uh, my experiences, I have to start my childhood in Slovakia, mm. uh, where I lived in a small village uh, called Merašice, uh, which, which is about um, 90 kilometers from Bratislava. Uh, my father was a farmer, and my grandfather had the village shop, uh, and we were very popular in the village. Uh, we were very much liked in the village, and uh, any time anybody needed any advice or even help sometime, they always come to the Reichenthal family, <laughs> whether my grandfather or to my father, whether they needed a legal aid or they needed a good doctor, they would always ask right. my grandfather where they should go. And um, so we had a, as a child, I had an idyllic life. I always call uh, the place I lived, this little village, the usual thing. You have the mm. one man road and then you have <laughs> a couple of uh, yeah. uh, little uh, road going from it. It was a farm, farming community. The people are very good. We didn't feel any discrimination because we were Jewish. But all this began to change in 1939 when um, uh, the German took over Sudetenland and they occupied the Czech Republic uh, and they also in imposed a puppet government in Slovakia, which um, was led by a priest, uh, Joseph Tissot. Mm -hmm. uh, he, was, he was a big anti-Semite and he surrounded himself with uh, people that sympathized with him. And he, was a, he sympathized with the Nazi regime in Germany. In fact, when in 1939 the Second World War started, uh, Slovakia was very supportive of uh, Germany. They helped with the war effort by transporting the ammunition, the heavy equipment like tanks and guns, to the Polish border. Mm. And of course the German pay for it, mm. so it was a good cooperation as far as the Government was uh, concerned because economically Slovakia didn't have much of an industry. Of course, the uh, propaganda also started mm -hmm. against the Jews. Now, we're talking about 1939. Mm -hmm. You haven't got the media and, uh, like you have today. Sure. Uh, and not only this, it, we didn't have, of course, television, but radio... Uh, if you had a radio, you were considered a middle-class yeah. person. <laughs> Most of the people didn't have radio. So the propaganda was spread to the churches. Mm. Uh, Slovakia was a very Roman Catholic uh, country, and uh, people would go to the mass, and at the mass, the propaganda against the Jews uh, was spread. Uh, anything that went wrong in Slovakia, mm -hmm. uh, who was uh, responsible? The Jews. The Jews. Mm -hmm. 
and so slowly the anti-Semitic uh, feeling began in Slovakia. It didn't take, didn't take long. Uh, in 1941, the first racial laws were introduced in Slovakia. They were called the Jewish Codex. Right. It had 270 paragraphs exempting uh, or restricting oh. the, the life of the Jews. Right. Among these uh, laws were that we had to wear a yellow star from age of five year old. We were not allowed to go to any public places like cinemas, theaters, swimming pools. Uh, we were not allowed to go to public parks. Mm. Uh, we had to be at certain time in the evening in our houses. We were not allowed to be out in the morning until certain time. So, and then the restriction, people that had businesses, uh, they were able to take only so much money for their livelihood from the banks. And this this was reduced as the time of was going on. Right. So eventually, they made the Jews very poor in mm. in, in Slovakia. I didn't know much about what was happening mm. for simple reason. My parents never told me. Of course. And they didn't tell me because uh, they didn't want to frighten mm. me. I was a little boy. Yeah. To tell you that this is happening and and we are hated and all this type of thing. They didn't want to tell me, I, in the village. Yeah. I didn't feel it. Uh, and also, in the village I never wore the yellow star, right. because uh, everybody knew us, Yeah. and there was no police to yeah. sort of supervise the Jewish people wear the yellow mm. star. So I, I never knew anything about <laughs> it. I didn't. Uh, know that we are hated and all that type of a thing. But when I went to the town, because um, in the, it was a neighboring town uh, called Nitra, there was quite a large Jewish uh, population, about 5,000 people lived there. So there were several Jewish schools there. Mm. So I went to live with my aunt so I can attend the Jewish school. Of course, in towns, the Jewish people usually lived in certain part of mm. the town. So the police was all around. Yeah. And, uh, of course, if you didn't wear the yellow star, you would be arrested and fined very high. Uh, fine you would have to pay. So I, I clearly remember the time in the evening before I was going to school, my aunt was sewing the yellow star wow. on my coat, and I, I said, what is that for? You oh, know, it, wow. very innocently. Yeah. And she said, ah, well, we are Jewish, we have to wear the yellow star. Now, I didn't question it. Yeah. Aunt told me that we have to wear it, it didn't make any difference to me. I didn't see any harm or anything, sure. so, okay, so <laughs> I wear it, and... Um, uh, my aunt and I went to the school and she went with me a couple of times, but everything like the synagogue, the community hall, the school, everything was very near because we lived all in sort of a certain part of the city. 
I think the school was about 300 yards from the house that oh, my okay. aunt lived. So after about two or three days, she said, well, you know where the school is, you can go on your own. And of course, that was the first time that I experienced abuse. Because when I was going on the street and uh, children without the yellow stars were coming opposite me, they suddenly started to shout at me, you dirty Jew, you smelly Jew, go to Palestine, and all kind of insults that I, I can't even mention, you know. As the time went on, they become more aggressive, so they would try to spit at me, throw stone behind me, after me. And, of course, I was caught a couple of times. They kicked me in my backside, let me go. So you can imagine a six-year-old boy being uh, accosted by, by a group of... Uh, Kids and very frightening. Yeah. I, I, I used to come home and cry to my aunt. I said, I don't want to go to school. I'm being abused on the street. And she just said, look, you have to go. But just avoid them. Don't get involved and things. So I used to run on the way to the school and on the way, all the way back from the school. And when I saw children coming opposite me without the yellow star, I would run to the other side of the street so that they don't catch me or spit at me. So it was very frightening time. Yeah. But then uh, eventually the deportation of the Jews started, which was in March 1942. And at the time it started uh, with young people, young Jewish girl and uh, boy and uh, people that uh, for work like between the ages of 16 and 36 mainly single uh, because they were taking them to work mm. so among the people that were taken were our teachers they were young uh, men and women and uh, i remember it was about uh, February 1942, one day we were told that the school is closing and we can go home. And so my education ended. The next time I went to school was after the war, it was in 1940, uh, towards the end of 1945. Right. So I lost my basic education. Yeah. Eventually, uh, the Slovak government was complaining, you see, Slovakia, in fact, was not occupied by Germany mm. because Slovakia cooperated with uh, uh, Hitler mm. and uh, Slovakia not only cooperated but helped, helped Hitler. Yeah. It is estimated that over 100,000 young men, Slovak young men and women, worked in Germany as volunteers Right. In the ammunition factories, the engineering uh, factories where they manufactured the tanks and guns. So Slovakia helped the German mm. in the war. Yeah. And therefore, Germany didn't occupy Slovakia. Mm. So whatever happened in Slovakia at the time was done by the Slovaks. Mm. And uh, when all the young men were taken away uh, from Slovakia, the government sent a delegation to, to Germany saying, look, uh, you're taking all the 
a young Jewish man and woman, the breadwinners of, of the family. Sure. And uh, eventually the government will have to look after the mother, children, the old people. Yeah. So why don't you take all of them? You oh. know? Uh, there was an agreement made at the time that uh, Slovakia would pay the German for taking the Jews away. Wow. And what is what is very interesting about it is that it was the only country in Europe that ever paid the German for taking the Jews away. The Slovak paid five hundred mark for every Jew wow. that was taken from Slovakia. Slovakia had about ninety thousand Jews before the war. I mean the war ended. Only about 17,000 were left alive. Jeepers. It was that they were all murdered in, in Auschwitz, Lublin, and extermination camp. At the time when the uh, rounding of the Jews began properly, only people that were not useful to the Slovak economy mm -hmm. were being taken. Because my father was a farmer, Mm. He was considered as uh, useful to useful. the Slovak economy, yeah. and therefore we got a exemption paper okay. that, for the time being, we shouldn't be taken away. Right now, this this deportation went unabated from March 1942 till October, for about six months. The government was led by a priest. Mm. Uh, Vatican was pressing that he should stop this deportation because yeah. as the time went on, they discovered that these people were being taken to this extermination camp mm. and being murdered. Uh, but the, the Slovak government was desperate to get rid of the Jews. Right. Uh, the fact was that that was one avenue of pressure on the Slovak government right. through the Vatican eventually... They had to reply, and eventually a, a delegation came from Vatican and was talking to Tiso to stop it. And the, the other avenue was that the Jews, the leadership, collected a lot of money, mm. and they began to bribe the people that were responsible right. for the deportation. And between these two pressure, they stopped. Okay. They, a lot of, lot of these official made a lot of money oh, yeah. out of this and I, I remember even my father he had to go every three months to this official in the city to get extension for his um, exemption right. and he was a ordinary uh, clerk yeah but he had so much power because <sighs> if my father come and said well you know I'm a farmer and he could say, well, you, I don't need to give it to you. you know? yeah. And then he could be arrested, you know, the slowly the news were filtering what was happening. Yeah. So every time my father come, as he was giving hand to the official, mm. uh, there was a little brown envelope. Oh. He said, how are you? <laughs> you know what I'm here for? Yeah. Yes, Mr. Eichenthal, there is no problem. <laughs> wow. And he gave it. This is how it was working. Yeah. You know? you, otherwise, you depended on a little official yeah. for your life. Mm. He, he, he had the power in his 
hand to to, yeah. to to send you to death, you know. So you give him a little. So many people did uh, a lot of money out of the Jews in Slovakia. Mm. When uh, the deportation stopped, still Jews were being uh, arrested and they were being taken to camps in Slovakia where they were uh, working. Mm. Uh, they were working in printing, uh, newspaper printing, uh, tailors were doing uniform for the Slovak army, uh, there was even a uh, toy factory because the Slovaks are very famous of wooden toys right. that they, you know, that you assemble a thing. Yeah. And, and the uh, Jewish leadership supported this because we thought if you do uh, something useful, yeah. the Slovak government will be prepared to not to expel you. Of course. You know? But many Jews didn't believe them. They thought it's all a trick to get you into this camp and mm-hmm. then you have centralized the Jews and eventually one day they put you on a, yeah. a transporting cattle cart and uh, the whole thing start again. So uh, the, many Jews were sort of hiding and uh, even us, when, when the uh, police was looking for Jews uh, and they would be in the neighboring village. Uh, we had some people that would uh, phone us and inform us okay. that, um, listen, the, the Hlinka guard, this, this, they were the police mm. that uh, were t- uh, arresting the Jews, are on the way, are on the way to, to your village. You right. better disappear. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so we would lock our house and run into the cornfield and oh. we would sit there till the evening the police would come and they wouldn't find us and right. they would then um, leave and probably tell the superior that we were not home. Sometimes we went in the barn we had on the attic. Mm. We had a place where we were drying the corn. Yeah, so it was sort of a time mm. of hide and seek, yeah. you know. But the, but it was a very serious heightened thing. It yeah, wasn't a game. Yeah. But, uh, you know, sometime even the night, when the, we were informed that they might be coming in the night, mm. we would sleep in the houses of our employees, which right. was co- very courageous of them. Yeah. Because if they were caught that they were hiding us, they would mm. have been very severely punished, you know. But we had a little cooperation from the local population mm-hmm. because the Slovak did not like the fascist regime. Right. Many Slovaks suffered. Anybody that belonged to a different political outlook mm. was being arrested. Yeah. Anybody that um, talked about uh, against the regime sure. or make some remarks yeah. would be arrested sometime never seen again. Nice. I mean, uh, Tiso's regime was a dictatorial regime. Mm. So the Slovak uh, didn't like it. And because of this atmosphere in Slovakia, the Slovak rose against the uh, regime in September, 21st of September, I think. Wow. Many police and army defected oh, and right. joined, the, joined the rebellion. Mm. 
So Tissot had no power yeah. to suppress it. Right. And that time, for the first time, Germany Germans. occupied Slovakia. Oh, okay. Not because they wanted to occupy yeah. Slovakia, but because they wanted to save the sympathetic yeah. fascist regime of, of Slovakia, which they, of course, succeeded. And within three weeks, mm. the rebellion was suppressed. Uh, many young Slovak men and women, it is estimated, about 15,000 wow. died in this uprising. Wow. And it, it failed in the end. So once the German occupied Slovakia, we knew that uh, any document we had or exemption, everything, mm. that oh, yeah. won't be any value to it. And uh, at the time, of course, in 1944, already we knew what was happening in Auschwitz. I don't right. know if you heard, but uh, two people escaped from Auschwitz, two Slovaks. Yeah. Uh, it, they made... They wrote a book about it, and there okay. was a film. These uh, men that escaped, they even informed the Roosevelt at the time mm. of what is happening yeah. in Auschwitz. And uh, when they come to Slovakia, the, during the night they used to uh, move, and during the day they used to hide. Okay. And it, But um, uh, at the time, the... Jewish leadership mm. didn't believe them. Really? So they put them each to different room <sighs> and interrogated them to see if they telling the tell truth. The truth yeah. You know, they put all kind of trick questions. <laughs> uh, but they realized what they are saying. Wow. It's true. So already in this happened uh, end of 1943 when they escaped. So in '44, we all knew, not, mm. not me, I, I, sure. I was only a child, but my parents, the adult among us, they mm. knew what was happening. So you can imagine uh, the fear, yeah. you know, living. Everybody knows you, uh, you don't know who is your friend, who yeah. is your enemy. So, of course, we decided if we stayed in the village, mm. sooner or later somebody will betray us. Yeah, know? yeah. And uh, we decided to move from the village. The idea was that we will go uh, to live somewhere else, uh, pretend that we were Gentiles, mm. and uh, nobody knew us. So Start new. Yes, kind of... new life. Yeah. Uh, but of course, with a name like Reichenthal, yeah. we wouldn't have gone very far. Yeah. They would, uh, or we were German, yeah. we were not German, mm. so they would have known that we are Jewish. Yeah. So we needed false documents, false mm. paper, identity cards. My parents were very friendly with the priest in the village. They were friendly because the priest was of uh, Hungarian origin. Okay. My parents were educated in Hungary, oh. so they sp spoke Hungarian. And at the time, you were not allowed to speak uh, Hungarian in in Slovakia because oh. Hungary and Slovakia were not very good friends. Yeah. You know, so it was uh, prohibited. 
So the priest was glad when yeah. he met my parents. They used to play cards and have a, <laughs> a drink and thing, and they were able to speak Hungarian. Right. So it it's always reminded him of his own. Okay. And he, he wanted to help us of course. all along. And in the past, he always suggested to my parents, he said, you know, to be Jewish is very difficult today. Why don't you convert? Mm. Uh, Ivan made a conversion, mm. you know, and you won't be Jewish. But, uh, of course, the Slovaks closed this loophole mm. and they only recognized conversion that were made before 1922. Oh, okay. Because many Jewish people did convert. Mm. They wanted to save their own life. Yeah. But the church and the state did not recognize because they knew mm. that this is not because you persuaded to yeah, be Catholic, of but you're doing it only yeah. uh, to, to, to live. Live like thing and, and then revert to your own yeah. religion. My mother always, when they met, they, once a week they used to play cards and things. And she said, it's no point, that, that will not help us. This time we needed uh, these false papers. So mm. one day when they were uh, playing cards, my mother said, you know, you, you always wanted to help us. We need help now. We need false paper. And, and he said, yes, he will <laughs> do that. Because he had, you know, people died and here's the documents. And, yeah. and I remember the name was Vida. Vida. Vida, that's what is a typical Slovak name. Right. So I will never forget that name because <laughs> I remember at the time my parents every day, every couple of hours said, remember one thing, if somebody asks you <laughs> yeah. what is your name, you tell them you Thomas Vida, yeah. not Thomas Reichenthal. <laughs> if you say Thomas Reichenthal, we will be betrayed, mm. and terrible thing will happen to us. Remember that your name is Vida now. Wow. And they would come to me every day to <laughs> drill it into yeah. my head. So it was in October uh, that we left the village. It was my mother, my brother, and myself. My brother is four years older than me. And my father stayed behind because he had to look after the farm, after mm. the livestock. And, and he said, look, on my own, I have a lot of friends around and they will warn me, they will help me. So I will be able to manage. Don't worry about it. You go. We left. We could move freely. Mm. We had a document. Sure. We didn't need to worry about that. And the plan was that we went to Bratislava and there we took my grandmother, my mother's mother, uh, because my father, uh, father's uh, parents, my grandparents, and they were taken away. They, they oh, were okay. arrested in July 1942. Oh. And we didn't know what happened to them, but of course they, they perished in Auschwitz. Oh. So um, the plan was that we will pick up my um, grandmother and she will be coming with us. In the meantime, in the village, my father was betrayed oh. by a local man. Uh, we were informed that he was taken away. My mother thought, that's it. She mm. will never see him again. 
And we, after a couple of days, we received a postcard from my father, and there were four words. I'm alive, don't worry. <laughs> oh, wow. We didn't know where it came from, what happened to him. Yeah. But what happened to him was that he was taken to detention camp in, yeah. in, in Slovakia, Seret. And from there he was put into a cattle cart. And on the way, one of the people in the cattle cart, he was a Hungarian crook. A safe cracker. Mm. He specialized in it. <laughs> he escaped twice before. Okay. He was caught this time again. And he said, uh, I'm going to open this cattle car. Really? Anybody wants to save himself should jump after me. Wow. He put a saw blade in the handle of the suitcase. Mm. And when the train was moving. It was during the night because the Slovak didn't want to show the population what they were doing with the Jews. Mm. He proceeded to take the saw blade out and he cut a hole in the door of yeah. the cattle car. Now, I don't know if you saw a cattle car. There is a sliding door. Yeah, door a sliding door, yeah. And outside you close it with a hook. Yeah. So you can't open it from inside. Sure. But he cut the hole. Yeah. Went with the hand and lifted flipped the, the thing wow. open. <laughs> opened the <laughs> carriage and jumped out. Wow. My father was standing not far from him. He jumped out as well. And after my father, another fellow jumped <laughs> out. Three people jumped out of the carriage. Nobody else at that stage, maybe later on. But nobody else jumped because not everybody has the courage of course. to jump with fast-moving train yeah, yeah. during the night. As it happened, when my father jumped, he jumped into a pole, you know, beside oh, the, right. uh, uh, the railway you have uh, these poles that carry cables. Mm. And he dislocated his hand. Oof. And uh, all his life he couldn't lift it over his really? head because wow. uh, he didn't get any first aid. Yeah. And it froze, you know, oh, my so goodness. he suffered all his life from it. But the fact was that he jumped out and mm. eventually he met the resistance army, right. the partisan, and then he fought against the German, wow. you know, sabotaging railways, bridges mm -hmm. and all this type of thing. And he survived. <laughs> but we, of course, didn't know. Of course. In Bratislava, we, my mother went to collect uh, my grand grandmother. And my grandmother was betrayed. Oh. So when my mother entered the shop, uh, there, it was full with... Uh, uh, Gestapo and police and things. When they checked the documents immediately, she had to identify herself. Of course, it was written Judith Vida. Mm. So, but the priest did not change her maiden name, oh. which was Shaimovic. Oh, okay. Because Shaimovic was sort of a Slovak-Hungarian name, mm. and he thought he doesn't need to change, you know. My grandmother's name was Rosalia Shaimovich because she was the mother of my... Oh. So when they saw it, they knew right away that my mother is the daughter. 
My mother was arrested. Our case is where in the train station, so they brought them back. When they opened the cases, they found children clothes. Mm. They said to my mother, where are the children? Mm. Now my grandmother was beaten up. She, she, uh, because they wanted to know who is looking after her. She was 76 at the time. Uh, at the time, 76 was a very old age. Yeah. Today, we still consider 76 young. You know? <laughs> and um, they knew that she couldn't look after herself. So they beat her up and she gave the name of her daughter and son. And when my mother came in, she saw the, her brother and sister there, already arrested. Oh. And we were waiting about 300 yards oh. with my brother for my mother. Because she said when she picks up my grandmother, she will pick us up and we go to the train station. Of course. But my mother didn't come. Uh, she told them when we were, and suddenly these two Gestapo men uh, entered the shop. We knew right away they were Gestapo mm. because the Gestapo uh, usually wore uh, their uniform. It wasn't a uniform, but they had this long leather jacket. Mm. They really stood out of the uh, yeah. uh, population. You know, they had hat and they had a swastika on the left arm, you know. And uh, they entered the shop. We knew right away that they were the Gestapo and they come to my brother straight and said, you're Jewish. And my brother said, I'm not Jewish. My name is Miklos Vida. You know, we thought with a name like this. Yeah. But we know you're Jewish. We didn't know that what happened. Yeah. And he was denying it, the next thing they started to beat him. Uh, but he still wouldn't tell them. He mm. still would not admit. So then they turned around to me and they started to beat me. Of course, as a, I was a child, nine-year-old, but even for nine-year-old, I was very small. And uh, I started to cry. I, they were hurt, you know, they were slapping me in the face. And, and my brother was always very protective. Of course. Of when he saw... What was happening, he jumped up and said, please, please, don't beat my brother. Because I also said, I'm not Jewish, yeah. my name is Thomas Vida. Yeah. I, we always thought that the name will save us, you know. Yeah. And um, he said, uh, he jumped up and said, stop beating him, we are Jewish. And I remember at the time, they the, the sort of, in an ironic uh, smile, they said... Well, you could have saved yourself all the beating if you told us from the beginning, you know. Yeah. Anyway, they come, they took us to the shop there, and um, there were 13 members of the family on that day really? were caught. Wow. You know, from one person to another, one address, and, you know, the Gestapo was low to themselves. They mm. could kill you. Yeah. They didn't need to feeling form like today the police have to write everything mm. down. They could do anything. They were law to themselves. So if they needed information, yeah. one way or another, they got it from you. Mm -hmm. So we were taken to the Gestapo headquarters. Uh, I remember during the night we were kept there and in the morning um, uh, in Loris they took us to detention camp seven. In Serret they did the selection. 
I don't know if you heard about the selection. The selection was that uh, uh, one high-ranking uh, high officer would uh, call a roll call and family by family would confront of him. Uh, the men and women, young men and women, able work mm. people to the right, mother, children, all people to the left. Mm. Now, the adult among us, they knew exactly what that meant. Yeah. This group are going to work. This group are going to uh, mm. uh, extermination camp. So after about two weeks, uh, it was the 2nd of November, 1944, we were called onto the roll call. 13 of us, the family, we were all together. We were selected. I remember my aunt uh, couldn't even give kiss to her husband. He went to the right, we went to the left. Uh, we were split, uh, seven went to the right, and six of us, which was my grandmother, my aunt, one of my cousins, my mother, my brother, and myself, to the left. As it happened, the group of the right side went to Buchenwald and Sachsenhausen. Buchenwald was a slave labor camp. The inmate worked in stone quarries 12 hours a day with very little food and conditions, uh, terrible conditions. The life expectancy there was between two to three months. So unfortunately, out of the seven, only one person survived. It was my cousin. He was at the time 15-year-old. Wow. Very difficult to describe. When, when you say to somebody goodbye, yeah. you have no time to say anything. You wave uh, goodbye, you wave them. The whole thing takes seconds. Yeah, yeah. You never saw them again. All right, so... I know that was a bit of a cliffhanger and maybe you guys are aching to hear the next part of the story, but don't worry, part two will be out on Wednesday, so only two days' time. And hey, maybe by the time you're listening to this, it's already out. Maybe all three parts are out, so you can feast on it all in one go. Thanks so much for listening, guys. And a little reminder, I didn't want to bombard you guys with too many details, but do let me know what you thought of this. Send me any message you like, any comments or anything. Talk about it in the Facebook group of When Diplomacy Fails Facebook group under the same name. Or just contact me in any usual place. If you want to pass a message on to Tommy Reichenthal as well, of course, I'll be happy to do that. Send me an email, wdfpodcast.hotmail.com. But until then, take care, and I'll be seeing you all soon.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.